you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. We're in Matthew chapter 20. And this evening we're going to look at a parable of Jesus which raises a question about fairness. About fairness. As any parent knows, children do not need to be taught that matter of fairness. As they play with their little friends or siblings, you can expect from time to time, from time to time to hear from the playroom, one of them exclaim and protest, that's not fair. Maybe one of them has had the favored toy in their possession for too long and isn't sharing. Or say ice cream cones are being handed out and someone has a little more on their cone than the others and the others will say, hey, that's not fair, it needs to be even. And when kids get older and they have friends that are, well, allowed to do some things that they're not or allowed to stay out later than they are or allowed to have a cell phone before they get to, mom and dad might hear those familiar words once again, that's not fair. And those kids grow up and they don't stop saying it, do they? They become adults and we adults know that injustices continue to abound in our lives. They continue to be felt in our lives. Someone at work threw you under the bus to the boss and you were passed over for the promotion and he got it. Some people are given more or less opportunity in life and in advancement because of the color of their skin or their gender. Uh, some of you in here have had to deal with infertility, even though your friends seem to make babies like rabbits. And it's no laughing matter for you, is it? Or, or some wonder similarly about singleness when all their friends are married off. Why not them? What's more, all of us have an innate impulse for grace and mercy and forgiveness especially when we hope to be on the receiving end of it. So no kid who has done something undeniably wrong pleads for justice to mom and dad. They don't want justice. No kid in trouble says, well, you know that verse, mom, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I think the most important thing here is that I get what I deserve. No, they want inequity. They want mercy, forgiveness, lenience, grace. And even we as adults, when we have done something stupid and sinful to hurt someone else, we hope, we, we, we expect that if we come to them humbly and ask for forgiveness, that they'll, they'll give it without hesitation, without reservation. We want that. We expect that. And we should. But to sum this up, we all have an innate sense of fairness, justice, and equity, even if at times we get that wrong or we're inconsistent. And we all have an innate sense and desire for mercy and grace and forgiveness, even if at times it's a little more self-directed and self-interested than it is for others. We can say Justice and mercy, both of them, justice and mercy are good and right, and we know that because of the image of God within us. And we can also say that because of sin within us, 
We are prone to get these things wrong. Prone to confuse the two, justice and mercy. Prone at times to want one and not the other when we should want the other and not the one. In Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, we have the parable of the gracious landowner. And it helps us understand our impulses for justice. And it helps us show God's justice and his astounding graciousness. Let's read it together. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? He said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And then those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Well, on Sunday we were in the book of Exodus where God makes a distinction between Israel and the Egyptian. He makes a difference geographically and regarding the physical protection of each. One nation is under protection in these chapters and another is under plagues in those chapters. And so we asked, why? Why Israel? Why would God redeem Israel and not another nation? And long before they were ever a nation, we could ask the same of the father who first received the promises of blessing. Why Abraham? Why did God call him among all the Chaldeans? We also asked, why you? Why me? Why are we saved? Why did he look our way? Well, we answered on Sunday in the simplest terms that It was not at all because God's favor was earned or deserved. And that's primarily what this parable of Matthew 20 is about. And we'll come back to that main point in a bit. First, I want to do a couple of other things. Here's here's where I want to take us in studying this passage this evening. I first think that we need to understand the basics of the parable. I have three Ps. The parable. Secondly, we need to understand its place 
in Matthew. And then thirdly, we'll come back to its primary point or primary points. I have four headings under that one. Three main points, four subpoints at the end. So first, understanding the parable. Understanding the parable. What is true of all the parables in the gospel accounts is certainly true of this one. So here's a definition of parables. Parables are made-up stories or sort of vignette story windows which use everyday kind of things like work and farming and parenting and households in order to instruct us about a spiritual matter And they're meant to be engaged. They're meant to draw us in. They're meant to provoke us. With parables, we're meant to sort of get caught up in the brief drama, to feel something of the tension rising, or a question being entertained, or maybe even to take a side in the story, only to have the tables then switched on us. And then a light bulb should go off. Or a dagger should be felt poked deep within. You can think of the parable of the prophet Nathan that he told King David in 2 Samuel 12 when he was confronting the king's great and many sins. Remember, he told the the parable, the story, David didn't know it at first, a story of a, a poor shepherd who only had one sheep. And another guy came and took that one sheep, a guy who had many sheep. And David was caught up in the drama of the story. He was incensed. He was caught up in the injustice of it. He said, who is the man? He'll pay. And that's when the prophet said, oh, king, you are the man. You see, it wasn't a true story, but it kind of was. And parables do that. They take us for a ride. Parables take us for a ride. So let's dig in a bit more to this parable, the parable of the landowner. Notice in verse 1, it's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. Back in chapter 13 of Matthew, five times Jesus began parables like that. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he told a, a parable. The kingdom of heaven is the spiritual reign of God over those who are his by his grace through faith. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's what they teach. They'll either teach about coming into that kingdom or what it's like inside. And here we have five different groups of workers which are hired, each at different times of the day. In these days... The clock, the clock, quote unquote, the clock went like this. 6 a.m. was sort of hour zero, and it counted up from there. That's what our passage is doing. And so it'll explain a typical workday of 12 hours from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And notice one group of workers is hired at that zero hour with the intent of them working a full day, 12 hours. And working for a denarius. A denarius was considered a full day's wage. So maybe a 
similar to our minimum wage and what it would cost if you worked for 12 hours. Maybe it's a little bit more than that, but it wasn't a ton of money at all. It was, um, it was laborer money. It was blue-collar laborer money, for sure. And so that's what they have agreed upon. The boss and his day laborers now have a deal, and they're now off to work. But then verse 3, three hours later, he sees others, that is the owner, the boss, sees others who have not yet been put to work, and he hires them. And notice here, he doesn't get specific on the financial arrangement. He simply says in verse 4, it'll be right. What is right, I will give you. Then verse 5, he does the same again three hours later with another group of workers, and then three hours later with another group of workers. And then the 11th hour comes, 5 p.m., and he hires another group of workers for the last hour. So again, keep this straight. Five groups of workers. There are the 12-hour workers who were promised a day's wage. There are the nine-hour workers who were promised to get what is right. There are the six-hour workers, the three-hour workers, and the one-hour workers. And they work all day. And when it comes time for them to stop, it also comes time for them to get paid in verse 8. And the owner, the, man, the, the landowner, has his foreman line them up in order. Those who came last are first in order. It's more dramatic that way. That's how parables work, right? You, you can kind of feel where it might be going or, or that something might be uh, curious or awry. And of course, those who came last and worked for only one hour were given a full day's wage. It's astounding. It's 12 times what was the norm, what was their due, what was the going rate. If you ask my daughter to babysit and you give her 12 times what everyone else gives her, well, I may actually call you. What, what are you doing? What, what is this? I don't know. Does this mean something? It's a, it's a big deal. As you can imagine, my daughter will not want me to call you, by the way. She will be very excited you give her 12 times. So imagine these guys. They, they worked for one hour. Imagine their elation. Imagine the shift from what they assumed they'd be getting, one-twelfth of one day's wage for that whole day. Not a whole day's work, but that's how much time they've been waiting for work or doing work. And now what they've received is a full day's wage. So you can also imagine the excited expectations of the four other groups as they stand there in line and hear that these one-hour workers got a denarius? Are you kidding? You can imagine the guys who work 12 hours are thinking, wait a minute, times 12. That's what we worked. So we're getting 12 denarius? Although the parable doesn't spell out that drama, it's left to our imagination between verse 9 and verse 10. But you can, of course, imagine what they were wondering before the decision was given and before it was put in their hand, just one denarius. So those who started at sunrise and worked for 12 hours in the heat of the day, 
They got one day's wage. And verse 10 says they thought they'd receive more. And verse 11 says they grumbled at the master. And verse 12 says in protest to the master. These who only worked for one hour, you have made them equal to us. And you have to kind of sympathize with it. It says in verse 12, we bore the burden of the day and the scorched heat. If, if we're familiar with the passage at all, we, we, we know to side with Jesus. We know to side with the landowner and not the grumbling, complaining workers. But you can understand if you allow yourself for just a little bit to sympathize and for it to feel really familiar. Well, the explanation's given, verse 13 and following. The landowner says, I did you no wrong. Notice he begins with friend. This is a warm rebuke, argued along the line of questions. Didn't we agree on a denarius? Take what belongs to you. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then with just a word, Jesus says the last will be first and the first last. With just that thesis, the parable ends. There's no conclusion. What happened? Did they go away happy? Did they go away mad? It doesn't say. And some parables end like this. It's sort of, um, why don't you determine how it ends? Where are you in the story? Who are you in the story? What will you decide? Are you content? Are you grumbling? Well, before getting to the primary point, a second point for us to consider is understanding its place in Matthew. Now, we'll just briefly consider the context in which this passage is found. You know what context is? It's where it sits in the passage. You just read a little bit before, a little bit after, and sometimes um, some clues pop up. And so look down in your Bibles with me at Matthew 19, and we'll read a paragraph or so on either side of our parable. Starting in Matthew 19, verse 23, this is what leads to the parable. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's see if Peter gets it. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What do we deserve? Do you see how this leads to the parable? What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. 
Of course, chapter 19, verse 30 is practically the same thing as chapter 20, verse 16, but, but they're flipped. The order in verse 30 of chapter 19 is first will be last, and now in chapter 20, verse 16, at the end of the parable, Jesus says, the last will be first. Well, let's read ahead a little bit. Look at chapter 20, verse 20. Let's see if the disciples, and even the mother of a couple disciples, let's see if they're starting to get these things. Verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that is to Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my father. And when the ten other disciples heard it, they were indignant at the, two, at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, we'll come back to the end of that paragraph in just a bit. But now with the placement of our parable in mind, now we're in a better place to understand the point. Thirdly, understanding the point. What is the point? Well, let me tell you what it's not. There are several options for what it is not. Uh, what I'm about to read to you are actually paraphrases I wrote down from actual interpretations. In other words, people who write books, who are smart, smart enough to write in books, said things like this about our passage, our parable. God wants everyone to work, and it's never too late to get started. That is not the point of the parable. Contra-capitalism, God wants everyone to have the same amount of money no matter how much or how little they work. This was not the early version of the new Green Deal or something. <laughs> That's wrong. It's not either that um, some can get done in one hour what others take 12 hours to do. Some said God is concerned for the unemployed and he wants us to put them to work. Or that this is a lesson in late life conversions. And even good old Spurgeon preach a whole message on that one. But I just don't think that's the point of the passage. Now there's truth in each of those things I said, in a sense. Maybe, maybe not one of them. Uh, but... 
But there's some truth there. It's just that it's not the point of the passage. And we also need to make clear, in case anyone would misunderstand, that that there is indeed, in the Bible, a very proper concern for justice and a cry for justice. You think of the widow who kept coming to the judge, crying and pleading for justice, and eventually he answered her, and how much more will the Lord answer her prayer? The Bible is very clear that there is such a thing as injustice out there. There is inequity. It'd be a good thing if we could have some influence on that changing and we should have some concern for those who bear great uh, difficult injustices. But I don't think that's the point of this passage. And I don't think this passage is ignoring that reality. I think there are multiple legitimate interpretations and applications of the parable. I think there are four of them. Uh, and I think that they could be sort of represented with concentric circles. Think of rings on a, an archery target. Rings on a bullseye. Um, and we're going to start from the outside and work our way in. We could say that all four of these points are on target but some are closer to the center than others. I think that's fair to say. So here's the first. It's about God's sovereign, undeserved kindness in circumstances, in the circumstances of life, in gifts, in blessings, and in gifts and blessings withheld. James 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from God, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Every good gift is from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks, what do you have that you haven't received? What do you think, you've earned it? What do you have that you haven't received? And if you've received it, then where is boasting about it or bragging about it? What we have is from God. And what we don't have is because of God. And as hell-deserving sinners, everything this side of hell is merciful and kind. Let me say that again. For hell-deserving sinners, everything this side of hell is merciful and kind. It's undeserved. No one receives any less than they deserve from God, but actually receive far more and far better than they deserve. Just take in those words on the outline here, my words, but I think they describe what's going on in the passage. Sovereign, undeserved kindness and generosity. It's written all over our lives if we have eyes to see. Yes, indeed, life is hard. Yes, indeed, life is harder for some than others. But God has been kind to us all. The question is, what are we going to see? What are we going to focus on? What are we going to remember? What are we going to rehearse? What will be quick on our lips as we speak to others? 
The Apostle Paul, who suffered much, never pretended that he wasn't going through suffering. And that's the way some weird world religions deal with suffering. You just pretend it's not happening. The bad isn't bad, it's good. Well, no, bad is bad. But Paul had this otherworldly approach of thinking that God's grace is shown in weakness, that that God is glorified in our weakness, that, that suffering is doing something eternally and spiritually good. And he just happened to see in the midst of all the sin and hardness and difficulty and suffering around him, the brightness of God's blessings shining the brightest. So it's like bright stars. And he's out on a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere. And the black is there. There's no denying it. But Paul just keeps seeing stars. And he keeps smiling. Or you think of Psalm 103. When David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits who forgives your iniquity and heals your diseases and redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good and renews your strength like like the eagle. Have you seen those, um, maybe those news clips, investigations on dirty hotels, and they go in with a UV light? in the darkness, and they show you all the stuff that is there, but you can't see it unless you have the UV light. Well, I mean, you can choose to carry a UV light with you when you travel, but you won't sleep any better. <laughs> I actually like hotels. I don't, being away, I don't like being away from family or home or even my familiar bed, but I think hotels are fascinating. Everything's right there. You know, you can freely watch TV and no one's going to say, hey, maybe you've watched a little too much TV. Nobody knows. <laughs> you can get some work done. It's quiet. You know, everything's 10 feet away, right there. But what a different stay it would be if I brought a UV light with me and turned it on before I started to get comfy or get to work or turn on the TV. I just pretend that stuff isn't there and I'll just trust God to keep me healthy, okay? (laughs) Or ponder any given day being viewed through two different lenses, two different sets of glasses. Imagine you have a, a set of glasses called blessings. That's what they see. And you have another set of glasses that you really call reality. And what it really means is you just see all the thorns and thistles and all the dumb people and all the aggravations and all that is not. Well, again, we don't pretend that the bad isn't there. But we do have to ask ourselves how often we're looking through the right set of lenses and we're really standing in awe of God's amazing, sovereign, undeserved kindness in little and big things. Let's not begrudge his generosity. Another point to the passage, I think, is God's sovereign, undeserved kindness in history. 
in history, and I mean in the grand sweep of history, I don't mean 50 years ago, what I mean is that Matthew's gospel account seems to highlight the surprise and the scandal of Gentiles coming into the kingdom with Jesus by grace. In fact, you could look back in your Bibles if you want to see just a few of these. Let me just highlight them for you. Like chapter 8, verses 5 to 13, where Jesus heals the son of a centurion, a Roman guard, a Gentile. And look at chapter 8, verse 10, when Jesus heard the man express faith, as he did. We won't go into that. But, but Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west to recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Well, Pharisees didn't like hearing that. And they didn't like in chapter 9, verse 10, when they protested that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Rarely was a Jew a tax collector, so tax collectors and sinners meant predominantly Gentiles. And in chapter 15, we have two different healings. I want to turn there, chapter 15, two healings. And there are two great expressions of faith here, both with Gentiles. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman, woman came from the region and was crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And her and Jesus have this exchange about you know, the breadcrumbs falling to the ground. And, and she says, yeah, but the dogs get the scraps. Right? Right? Please? Verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Or we could go a little beyond our passage into chapter 21, verse 31, where Jesus says to the Pharisees there, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. So consider that there was an era generally, not, not totally, but generally, where God was saving among the Jews and not generally among the Gentiles. There were exceptions, sure. But remember, something changed in the book of Acts, like in Acts 10, when all the doors had been sort of dropped and Gentiles could walk in freely without any extra steps. Well, before that, the Pharisees had apparently been like these 12-hour workers. And they're saying, who are these Johnny-come-latelys? These Gentiles, these dogs, they, they eat with Jesus. We're the ones with clean hands. We're the ones with pure hearts. We're the ones who've been working at it all. Well, not every day, not all day, but every, every year, all the time. And who are they, these Gentiles? They get the same grace as we do. You think of a passage like Ephesians 2, where Paul encourages the Gentile Christians to remember that there was a time when they, their people, were generally strangers from the covenants and the promises. And they were without hope and without God in the world until Jesus came and now has made one new man of the two, Jew and Gentile. 
So here we have a hint, I would say, in Matthew 20, in a parable form, we have a hint of the equality of the standing that is in Christ and the equality of blessing, no matter your heritage, no matter how Johnny-come-lately you are to this thing. A third point, getting closer to the bullseye. Is God's sovereign, undeserved kindness in our salvation? In our salvation. That's implied in the point under history, but here we get more explicit. Remember, it began, the kingdom of heaven is like. And when Jesus says that, what he's going to say next is something about how one gets into the kingdom or what it's like in the kingdom. And I think both of those are true here with this parable. The point of the parable is that we bring nothing to the table in salvation. It would miss the point of the parable, I think, if you think that we must contribute at least one hour. That's not the point. Don't get caught up in that. The point is not that the one-hour workers worked one hour. It's that they had no hope before that. They had no hope before the invitation to come. That day, they were in desperate need. It was literally the 11th hour. And if you're a day laborer in mama's home with the kids... And the food is getting low. And you wait for work. And you wait for work. And you wait for work. And no one comes. And no job is offered. And so desperately you wait for work. And you wait for work. You don't go feed the pigeons. You don't go home and watch TV. You just keep waiting for work until the 11th hour. You know that scene in that Cinderella Man movie? Russell Crowe is a, a boxer, barely making it, and, uh, and so he has to go work. And he goes down to the docks every day, and he hopes to get picked. And when he doesn't get picked, he goes home. And in the movie, that's quite understandable, right? It wouldn't make any sense to just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. But here is a guy who is like Russell Crowe in Cinderella Man, waiting to be picked for work so that his kids can eat. And they wait for the 11th hour. If you think you're unworthy to come in, to get in on this Jesus thing, well, here's, here's some 11th hour people. They may have meant well and may have been willing to work. We have no reason to doubt that. But if you think you're unworthy to get in on this Jesus thing, well, that's, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That's exactly the point. The point is not. He needs you. And even in your old age, you might be still useful to him. No, that's not the point. It's their unworthiness. It's amazing grace. Amazing grace. Their salvation is... Undeserved. It's 12 times, unthinkable, what they get compared to what they put in. And so as sinners, we don't want justice. <laughs> we don't want God's full, raw justice. We, do, we better not ever say, God, you better give me what's fair. He may just do it. And you don't deserve grace. It's the nature of grace, undeserved merit. 
Some of us, even who have experienced grace, may at times be tempted to grumble that others are getting it. I don't suspect that's a common temptation or sin in this church, but I've seen it before. Certain kinds of sinners get saved and have the God-given boldness and courage to be free in their celebration of God's grace in their lives, and some crusty old men can roll their eyes or snicker. Well, instead, every Christian should exalt in the extravagance of God's mercy and generosity and kindness in salvation. And now one final point, the bullseye. Here it is, God's sovereign, undeserved kindness shown in Christ. In Christ, particularly in his cross and resurrection. We know that's the point because of where the passage goes after verse 16. You can pick up in verse 18 with me. Jesus said to his disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. And as we already read from later on in chapter 20, the purpose of this is that Jesus would serve, not be served, because he came to be a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a payment. And so it's not just that God saves generally or that he forgives or that he's merciful. That's true, but he's merciful and forgiving specifically in Jesus and specifically in the cross in resurrection. In the cross, Jesus paid for guilt and sin. And in the resurrection, he proved that the payment had been received in heaven. And he lives forevermore. Let's ponder tonight God's sovereign, undeserved kindness shown to every Christian in this room, in Christ, in his cross and resurrection. Let's ponder again the pain of the cross, the grief of being forsaken by the Father, of bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. Let's stand in awe that it's settled. Let's stand in awe afresh tonight that he's, uh, he's put us to work in, in real life, not just the parable, in real life. There's no end of day where he pays us out and sends us home. To come in by grace is to get to work and is also just to keep receiving blessing. It's almost as if we could combine parables here. We shouldn't do this kind of thing, but I mean, just imagine the parable of the prodigal son who comes home and what does he get? Everything. Oh, it's so undeserved, right? And the older brother can feel it. He can feel the injustice of this. I stayed put and I was good and he left and he spent and he blew it and he sinned and now he comes back and just says sorry. Before he even gets sorry out, dad, you give him the ring, you give him the rope, you kill the fatted calf, you have everyone party and celebrate and I never got a party, I never got to celebrate because I was always working too hard for you. Well, that young man did not know grace. 
Do you? Do you? I pray you know it tonight. I pray you feel it tonight. The Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 16th century, begins with this question and answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Before I read what they wrote, just ponder what you might say. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Got it? I'm sure none of us thought of something as good as this. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father. In fact, all things work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Spirit, his Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our only comfort in life and in death. And we're here tonight to hear that from God's word. We're here tonight to see that in the symbols of broken bread and juice in a cup reflecting the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. As we partake of this tonight, let's remember afresh our need for Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. Let's remember our unworthiness of this great gift of God in the gospel. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11, Asher referred to it earlier. We preach the Lord's death until he returns in this meal of the broken body and the spilled blood. We remember afresh in this that it's already done. This is not a re-sacrifice of Jesus. No, the sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice. It's already been done. But this reminds us that he's not here. It's already been done. He's now in heaven at the Father's right hand and reigns forevermore. And he'll come again to meet us in the flesh one day. Until then, we have this great picture of his body and blood for the forgiveness of sins.